Imagine if each morning when you wake up, you're smiling and looking forward to your day, knowing you are happy even while you're dealing with grief and loss. The Grief and Happiness Podcasts inspires, comforts, and supports you with each new episode. I'm Emily Zerothret, welcoming you to explore with me your life of endless possibilities. Aloha. I am so happy to be here today with Inez Ribostello. I hope I said that right. (laughs) And she's written the book, Life After Windows, uh, referring to windows. Is it windows on the world? Yes. Yeah, I'm always, I'm not sure about the on. Uh, Windows on the world. And she has an amazing story to tell us. And, And the thing I like best about it, and I'm sure that you will enjoy too, is that I can't imagine going through something more traumatic than the experience that she had 20 years ago. And today she's got a beautiful smile. She has a, a great life and she's a wonderful person. So I'm, I'm very happy to have her here today to talk to. And so Inez, would you just like to start off telling us a little bit about your experience and what happened? Yeah, I am born and raised in a very small town in rural eastern North Carolina called Tarboro, where I am coming uh, from today, and moved up to New York at 22 years old. It was the first time I had been north of the Mason-Dixon line, actually. Very, you know, naive and ready for my journey to begin. My path had been that I was going to go to culinary school on the Upper East Side. I was living with four other women from North Carolina also, and we were in a two-bedroom apartment, you know, young, with just nothing but energy and excitement. And I don't think any of us had these plans to, like, actually find our career in New York. It was more of a, let's go work for a while and, you know, have some fun But what ended up happening for me is that I found my passion at the time, which happened uh, to be what you drink when you're eating food, (laughs) but but not food. I um, while I was in culinary school, I I got a part time job at a wine store and quickly realized I like to drink more than I like to cook. Uh, Had never been told ever that you could make a career in wine. Had never heard the word sommelier. but uh, read an article in the New York Times about uh, a young woman named Andrea Emmer, who was a master sommelier and the beverage director at Windows on the World in One World Trade Center. Um, and so I cold called her, eventually got an interview, and eventually uh, got an entry-level position as an assistant seller master, which is um, a very fancy word for minimum wage paid box mover. <laughs> And I moved a million wine boxes and I took sommelier wine classes uh, while I was there and eventually moved up the ranks to beverage manager and eventually beverage director um, of what was the largest grossing restaurant in North America. And here I was now at 25 years old running a million dollar wine program, living what I believe was 
my best life. I I loved my job. I loved New York City. While I missed my family at home, I just had found, I guess, this treasure in 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 work and and my work family. And it came to a, a grinding halt on 9-11 and changed everything, changed the world, changed, you know, our country, changed me, certainly. And that's kind of like where the where the memoir begins um, is how I moved forward after something that was um, truly devastating uh, emotionally with no precedent, really, you know? Yeah, yeah. Nothing you could read something about somewhere that would help because how do, how do you deal with something like that? You had m- many friends that you didn't see again. Right. And that was really, obviously, the people who were killed, who were in the building. That loss was monumental. But then there were people who who survived, but I still never saw again because people moved away and people got jobs in other places. And so there were 500 of us. And while we were fortunate that 80, only 80 died on September 11th, there were, you know, 420 who I lost seeing every day, but who still lived. Wow. Just listening to you talk about it, it gets to me. It's uh... I remember that day very clearly. I was I was in California, but it was it was so vivid for everybody. I think everybody remembers where they were when that happened and and what happened. And I I can't imagine what it was like to say to to hear about it and go, okay, now what do I do? And what were your first thoughts? What did you do when everything happened? I was so naive when I first was watching it and saw where the plane had hit our building, my my first thought was, oh my goodness, it's going to take me forever to clean up this mess. Mm. Yeah, my mind didn't even go to the fact that there were people dying. I just, I couldn't get there initially. But when I watched the towers fall and and realized what was happening, I, I went into, I would say, a very severe state of shock that was living with this dark depression and a numbness that almost became part of my being instantaneously on that day that stayed with me, I would probably say three years with this just really evil apathy that I never knew I had or had never experienced. Kind of, I'm pretty positive person, um, optimistic, hopeful, and all of a sudden, all of those were robbed from me. I just couldn't feel them, and I couldn't find them, and just uh, not knowing who I was. And the, the evil apathy is such an interesting way to describe what you were feeling, and it's certainly understandable. I, I can't imagine what it would be to feel that. I I know how hard and devastating for me it's been, even when I knew it was coming with both of my husbands. It's still, the initial shock was incredible, but to have that multiplied like your experience was, 
it would be hard for me to imagine being able to live through it. It just seems like like life changed so dramatically for you just in an instant. And I appreciate you saying uh, the three years, because I know a lot of times when people are, are grieving, they think if after a few weeks that they're not feeling back to normal, uh, <laughs> that there's something wrong with them. And we, every instance of grief and loss is different. And we all have to deal with whatever our particular situation is. And with yours, I think three years is good. <laughs> To, uh, you know, I'm I'm sorry those three years you had to go through, but I'm so glad that you you found a way to um, move forward. You don't I, I can't say you get over something like that, but you can move forward with your life. And I think you've stopped focusing so much on that and trying to focus on other things that uh, that can bring you happiness. So how did you start moving forward? What was, uh, what propelled you? Yeah, you know, I didn't do any of the right things that I, that I would do now, which would be, um, and in fact, I was, I was speaking with two gentlemen last night whose company where they worked for 16 plus years just burned to the ground um, Mm. before Christmas. And they had reached out and um, just said, you know, there's no one here who knows what we're going through. And we just wanted to talk. And while grief is so different for everyone, I mean, the the two lessons that I look back on that I did not do, that if I could give any words of wisdom, the, the first one was um, I didn't invest in therapy and I greatly needed it. <laughs> And then the second one was that I jumped right back into a a stressful management position. And, you know, I didn't have the luxury to not work, but I could have done something that was on on a much lower stress level that would have provided me a steady income without the, just the intense rush, go, go, go of a, of a high management position. So starting to heal, you know, I was, I say this in the book, I was, I was very angry at God. And so I ignored, ignored God and felt very faithless for those three years. But I think just the, um, the investment in relationships with people who continued to reach out, even though I was very despondent, um, they didn't give up on me. They gave me all the grace, you know, I wasn't giving, you know, I wasn't doing my part as a friend and they, they were okay with that. But really my, my true healing came. And I, I say this three years later, because on September 12th, 2004, my daughter was born and she was the one who catapulted me into a, okay, if I'm not going to do this for myself, I'm, I've got to do it for my my new life that I've brought into into this world because that just isn't fair. That's um, so beautiful. I love how you had uh, friends that supported you through things. I, I know I thought I had lots of friends before Jacques died. And when he did, it's like everybody kind of faded away. I don't know whether they didn't know what to say to me or that I was a reminder of, to them of their loss 
or what it was, but I, I do have some friends that I had back then, but not that many. They just, uh, I was surprised. I was surprised that they kind of left me alone. So I, I'm, I, that's wonderful that you had people that took you where you were and, and were still there. That, that's so wonderful and and having not wonderful for you though I uh, know <laughs> it's no, okay do you think people are very afraid slash uncomfortable with grief of grief yeah absolutely and it's not like you have to have the perfect words mm-hmm. to say to someone who's grieving you just have to be present that's right that's so important. That presence makes all the difference in the world. And I know in, in my case with Jacques, he was, he was a lot older than I was. And I think a lot of people said, well, what did you expect? Which they didn't say it to my face, but I could, I could see it in, in their attitudes and, and ways that they, they actually behaved. But it was, uh, it was a lonely time. And I really think it had a lot to do with, with two things. One was fear. because when you see somebody who's who's vital and happy and and wonderful and they're gone you get well that could happen to me or that could happen to someone i love and i was a reminder to them of that and now that i've said that i can't remember the second one it was really good too (laughs) when you think of judgment it was judgment you know people judge and that was like with the fact that he was older than i was and i think that because they had feelings like that, that they they kind of didn't know how to handle being around me. Like, what did I expect? So why am I unhappy? Mm-hmm. So, but I, I got through it. Took a while. Uh, gratitude got me through it, really, because I I was focusing totally on all the things that I wasn't happy about instead of that. There, I still had a life. There were still things that I could do, and. In your case with your your fabulous baby being born, that I know that when I had my son, my first child, it changed my life, changed my whole world. I was so happy then in a way that I hadn't understood even before in my life. So it's it's really a point of demarcation in, in our, our journeys, I think, when the, that new life comes into the world and there you are, and now you got to do something with her. You know, <laughs> you got to raise that girl. I think, firstly, when you experience something that is life changing, and you see how people either show up or don't, mm-hmm. it is it's a learning. You know, it's like okay, now we know that that's not what we want to do for those that we love or for those that are hurting, and then my grief and sorrow in this world that I'm living in now are just exponentially sadder when someone's child dies. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think I struggle with that because, well, A, I've never had that happen. And I think it could be one of the worst things ever, I imagine. But I feel very inept at having the right words because I don't know how you get over that. I can't imagine either. I've talked to lots of people that have have lost, unfortunately lost a a child, even an adult child. And it's not like anything else is. 
And just like those those feelings that you have when they're first born are like nothing you've experienced before. I was I, I can remember one night in the middle of the night uh, being up nursing my baby and rocking him and and thinking now I understand my mother in a way I never could before. I never understood what she was feeling or what she thought or anything. And and I I felt a closeness to her at that moment that I had never experienced in my life. And uh, I was just thinking too about the friends that I still have that I had uh, before Jacques died, that there's still the ones who were real friends are still with me. The other, I kind of relegate into the category of acquaintances as opposed to, to friends. But those ones that are still with me, like I, I have a, uh, I don't have, but there's a nonprofit foundation now that supports my work and my grief and happiness alliance. And three of the board members were people that knew Jacques. And uh, another person who's, who isn't on the board yet, but hopefully she will be, has been a tremendous help to, to getting the foundation started. And we have a different kind of bond than I do with, with anybody else in my life because they kind of knew me before and after. And there's a lot to be said about that. When you go through such a traumatic thing, even though you're not necessarily going through it together, because we each have our own experiences, but you still have the opportunity to develop a bond that you wouldn't have even considered before, you wouldn't have thought of before. And those are the ones that, you know, that are, I mean, those relationships are so meaningful. Oh, yeah. They're, they're just incredible relationships. I'm so, so grateful for them. So let's fast forward 20 years. So <laughs> I, I know that you were able to create a restaurant in your hometown. And boy, would I like to go there. <laughs> it just sounds like it would be a wonderful place to be. You have an open invitation anytime. <laughs> oh, yay. That would be great. <laughs> I'm not sure I'll ever get off the island with these <laughs> surges we keep having with this pandemic thing. But someday I'll get back to the mainland and, and plan to uh, go places and, and do things to, to visit and then come home to Maui. <laughs> <laughs> but tell, tell me about um, you have a restaurant. So that's not the same thing as just wine. Since you have the, the wine passion, uh, I think you still are passionate about wine, but also brewing now, right? Yes. And also the restaurant. And it all just sounds so wonderful. And what I really like is the connection with the community, a, a small town. I was born and raised in a small town, and I still have a company there. It's 62 years old. And I'm I'm on the board of it and uh, with my daughter and my two nieces. We're, we're the owners now of the company that uh, we inherited from my parents. Oh, wow. What kind of company? Ambulance. Oh, that's so neat. Yeah, and especially in the last couple of years. <laughs> it's turned into something uh, different than it was before with, with all the things that we're doing. But we, we are so focused on the community, so focused on taking care of our people that, that work for us, like, like family, it's different when you're in a small town. And when I was reading your book, I had that, that feeling about what you did with your restaurant and with the brewery and how good it is to be places where you've known people forever, where you can, you can walk to your grandmother's house or to be easily get around in your community. 
So tell us a little bit about that. How's your life now? You know, this community has been such a vital part of, of the healing, you know, coming back and opening a restaurant and having this town and this county support it and support our family and and love on us and check on us. It, it's amazing. I I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm so grateful that they want us here and, and that they and they appreciate what we're doing because I I have had friends who have gone back to their hometowns who have said that was not their experience. Mm. But we, you know, they've embraced my husband who's from New York and my children have been able to do extracurricular activities and we're able to be there. I don't think a lot of restaurateurs in bigger cities have that luxury. You know, we're, you're all, you always have to be at the restaurant. We've employed so many young people. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's great. And when we see them come back and move back here and and start families and, and, and jobs. It's it's like a just a great big reward all over again. But yeah, having my you know, my big old blended family, my mother, stepfather, stepmother, father, and um, my mother-in-law relocated down here from New York in 2007. My father-in-law, who's been in New York, has just moved down here in with us for a couple of months while it's cold. Oh, wow. So just grateful that that Stephen and I have been able to just feel this like community, this value has uh, just been un- un- unbelievable. Yeah, I, I see that so much that, that I think the people who have the most difficulty dealing with grief and loss are the ones that don't have community. They, mm-hmm. they don't have yeah. people there to support them. And unfortunately, there's a whole lot of people like that in the world. And that's part of who I'm, I reach out to, to people that uh, may not have anybody else that they can talk with or deal with. And so I, I like to bring people together, like in the Grief and Happiness Alliance, who have uh, have loss in common. And mm-hmm. with with that, they can develop bonds and love and support each other. And I, I just, I think that's, that's what makes the world go round to have uh, people that you can deep, deeply connect with. You know, there's that, um, I love that movie into the wild. And at the end carves uh, saying happiness is sharing it with others. Mm. Are you really happy if you don't have someone or ones to share it with, but I do think like the value of being in community is just underspoken about. Mm-hmm. That's, that's one of the reasons I love it so much here in Maui. I've lived in a lot of places, all in California before now, but I've never lived any place where the love is part of the community. There is actually a law of aloha that people who do business in the state of Hawaii are expected to follow. And it's, it's essentially a law of love. Aloha means a lot of things. Love is one of the primary things. And I thought, wow, this, this is cool. This is where I want to be, where people, it's just an expectation. You know, yeah, it's a law, but it's an expectation that people will treat each other 
well. And the, the word here for family is ohana. And though my son lives with me now, but besides that, I don't have any other family here on the island, but I've got a big ohana. Mm. And I've, uh, hanai is the word for an adopted child. And I have uh, a, a hanai daughter. <laughs> she's, uh, she's not a kid. She's, she's grown up and, and we're very, very close, but she calls me her ohana mama. And we just... We walk in and out of each other's houses. Somebody came up last night. She's on uh, a five-day restriction because she was exposed. She's she's a nurse, and she got exposed in a way that she she had to um, stay home. But she was trying to cook, and she didn't have any coconut milk. So she called me, and I said, sure, I've got coconut milk. So I put it out on the porch so that we wouldn't be violating the <laughs> restricting thing. And she was able to come up and get it and still be able to eat what she wanted to for dinner. But <laughs> we, we just are always bringing things into each other's lives and back and forth. And I, I love that. I, I think the whole world could be so much better of a place if we could all look at each other that way. Like, how can I befriend this person or what can I do for someone else that, that would make them happy? And I, I love doing that. Well, I in your book, I, it's, a, it's a really, really good read. I, I was going to say I really enjoyed it, but there's, there's stuff about it you don't really enjoy. It's, it's, it's history. It's truth. It's things that make you aware of the world and how things happen. So I think it's a very valuable book to read. And toward the end, you wrote a section that, that really struck home with me. And I, I'd like to ask you to uh, read that for our listeners now, if you wouldn't mind. I have sought out my journals from that time to see what advice I can give now, how I might assuage the fear, the loneliness, the depression. But the only comforting words I can find are the ones given to me by so many of you in 2001 when you wrote and called to say, you are not alone and you will survive. I remember looking at the people who said this to me, thinking they had no idea what they were saying. To be honest, I didn't believe them at all. But they continued to say it. And I continued to get out of bed each morning. And I continued to go to bed each night. And I continued to breathe. And at some point, I started feeling whole again. Not immediately but gradually. My friends, we cannot control what's happening all over the world right now. All we can control is our reaction to it. And that will most certainly control the outcome. All credits for this wisdom go to my favorite high school football coach. Yes, the landscape is going to be very different on the other side. It's going to look empty and desolate and dark, but it won't stay that way. It can't. It can't stay that way if we continue to breathe and lift one another up to encourage our neighbors in all the ways we know are possible. So powerful, such powerful words. I really like the whole book, but that, that passage was worth reading. <laughs> the, the whole thing, very, very powerful. And I, I appreciate you being able to read it. I just, I teared up with you reading it. I'm not sure I would have been able to read it myself if it was my story. So... Well, I, I appreciate you being here with us so much. Not the pleasure. Oh, thank you. I, I, I think about that, that saying that those of us who don't pay attention to history are doomed to repeat it. 
And I, I think it's very important that we look at things that happen to us in society, in society and think about how can we not repeat that. So, and lots of love came out of this tragedy. I, I know somebody in the, the community who I was living at that time established a scholarship fund for children of people who died in the trade, World Trade Center. And I thought she didn't know anybody there, <laughs> but she, and people donated a lot of money and, and made a nice scholarship. So she found one thing that she could do that could uh, make a difference. And I, I think doing things like that, that's so powerful. Right. It's all we can do is just to support one another. And, and, and my dad always used to say, if you're ever feeling down, go do something nice for someone else. Oh, that's great. And it's, you know, it's amazing what that does for you. Yeah. Wow. Well, I would love to know your wine recommendations, but that's probably <laughs> another show. <laughs> Thank you, Emily. <laughs> and I'm, I'm so glad that you took the time to be with us here today. And I look forward to a lot of people reading your book and getting to know you more and, and going to your restaurant here, it's on the square. Is that, that's yeah. the name? And, and Arboro Brewing Company. Oh, wow. And both sound great. So when you're in North Carolina, you know where to go. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Please come see us. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll look forward to meeting again with my uh, listeners. And I'm so happy that you've tuned in to listen to Inez's story. It's very powerful. Thank you and aloha. Aloha. Do you want more comfort, support, and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another episode.